Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Tiffany is away this week, but I am joined by Monique Lee. She is a fellow resident of Seattle, Washington, who moved here from Vietnam over 30 years ago. She's also the host of Afternoons with Monique and a professional matchmaker. Thanks so much for coming on the show. It's my pleasure, Katie. Of course, we have to talk about your interesting career as a matchmaker, but I do want to start with your background of coming to the U.S., How old were you when you moved over here and what was the circumstance? So I left Vietnam when I was 16, but I didn't come to the U.S. until 17. I was in the refugee camp when I was a teenager. I was there for eight months. So I turned 17. When I got here, I went to high school right away. And the transition was kind of interesting. Let me tell you, the experience of arriving to America was quite dramatic. Yes. you want to hear about my my escape yes. uh, from Vietnam or do you want to hear the landing to America? Because that eight month period, you know, there's a lot of things that happened. I want to hear the whole thing. I want to hear the escape and also how you ended up landing here. Okay, okay. So when I was 16, I was going to junior in high school in Vietnam and had a lot of friends. I was a pretty decent student. And one day my mom just kind of nudged me to the side and said, We have an opportunity to go to America, but only one uh, person could go. Do you want to go? And me being the rebellious, stubborn-headed teen, I couldn't wait to get out of my parents' uh, control grips. And so I, uh, I was happy that they asked me because with their consent, I would be able to get away from them. So (laughs) not too excited. That hurt my mother's feelings, but I was pretty happy that they asked me. So the next day, literally four o'clock in the morning or something, I was woken up. Everything was packed into this tiny little bag. I have just, just one extra outfit to change into a little wallet with my ID. That's pretty much it. I just left my parents' uh, home with my dad's um, friend, Uncle Ming, I called him, and his son, who's 17, so he's a year older than me. So with the two of us and Uncle Ming left and went to a little town and wait for the big boat to go on the scene. We had to hide in the little boat for a while and have to act kind of, uh, you know, nonchalant, conspicuous, so no one would suspect that we are trying to get out of the country without uh, being captured because if I had been captured I would be put in jail for a little while the communist government did not want the world to know that people are trying to get out from their country to go to um, other countries to live they find that to be embarrassing I guess a lot of that was going on and it so happened that I was one of the last refugee that was allowed to come to first world country. 1989, I arrived to the refugee camp after three days floating on the sea, dehydrated, completely exhausted, and I couldn't eat a thing. I I couldn't drink a hold down anything. Mm. Ocean was rocking the boat like from side to side like a swing. And I threw up everything. I couldn't hold anything down. I was completely dehydrated because you just don't have anything in your stomach to throw up anymore. 
Where was the boat going when you were on the boat? Well, I didn't know at the time, but I just know that I was heading to a, a more free country in Southeast Asia, Malaysia or Thailand or Singapore. So the details were not given to me because I was 16 years old and people did not feel like that I need to know anything. Hmm. So I just kind of follow this Uncle Ming, friend of my dad, to the boat and he sat with me just kind of helped me out. And after three days of just craziness, I arrived in Malaysia first, and I stayed there for eight months before I came to the U.S. Well, just before we get off the boat, how many people were on the boat with you, would you guess? 157. Oh, wow. We had the second most populated boat that had arrived to Pulau Bidang, which is an island in uh, Malaysia, which is where the refugee camp Everybody, all the refugees uh, that landed in Malaysia got bused and then shipped there to live. I guess they, they needed to be in a separate land and we didn't have access to other Malaysian. We just stay in the, the island, very hot, very dry. It's almost like it's, it's like an, an island that, you know, the local has allocated or the government in Malaysia had decided that that's where we're going to house all the refugee before we process them to relocate them to another country. So did you, besides the man that you called an uncle, was there anybody else on the boat that you became friends with during those days? Or were you just too sick to do anything? Well, there was three days and I barely was conscious on the boat. After the first day and I threw up everything and couldn't hold down any water, I was uh, basically very weak. I couldn't talk to anybody. We were housed in the hall of the boat at the bottom. You don't, you don't want to know, but bathroom is like literally right there. And so the smell mm. is just incredible. And I don't know, it's, it's, it's dramatic. So no, we, we try to endure as, as much as we can and try to conserve as much of our energy uh, you know, with lack of water and food, we were not allowed to bring so many things on there. Mm. Yeah, I didn't make any friends on the boat, but I, I made some friends during the time I was in uh, Pulau Bidong uh, in Malaysia. I was 16 and I befriended a couple of 16-year-olds, a 17-year-old around there. And one of them was really good to me. I went to church a few times with this girl who was so sweet and so kind and I you know, became a Christian because how nice she was. And how were you feeling from the moment your parents ask you, would you like to go live somewhere else? And you happily agree, probably not expecting what you're going to have to go through to get to somewhere else. How did you feel about your decision? I was a little homesick when I was living in the island. But um, for the most part, I was kind of happy that I have a, a better future ahead of me. You know, I had kind of a dramatic childhood with, within my family. I was the oldest. I was expected to do, fulfill a lot of responsibilities and obligations, but was not given a lot of rights or authority toward my siblings. So I, I felt it was very one-sided. When I got out of that situation, I felt a lot of freedom. It wasn't just freedom to, you know, it's like a communist country, <laughs> escaping the country, but also escaping the, the restriction of parents, you know. So it was a lot of uh, relief that I felt and rather happy. So I really thrive 
during the time I was in the refugee camp and but not to the level where I later on really enjoyed my life in America. Although it was a lot of upheaval and learning curve and a lot of struggle, I can't complain at all about how my life had turned out at this point. Well, since most people listening have never been in a refugee camp, some have, I know that for sure. But what was it like? What did it look like? So they uh, had equipped or uh, furnished the refugee camp with uh, some wood and some uh, congregated metal sheets. And then the refugees would have to put them together and build their own houses or something like that. But by the time I got there, these barracks had been built. They're not that big, but uh, they were very crowded. I had to share a small, about eight by 10 or 10 by 10 room with at least 12 other girls, women. And I was 16. I was supposed to be housed with the other minors under 18 people, but they ran out of space uh, because in the minor camp, people cook for them. And they would get toys and they get clothes and basically the adults look out for them. But I was not put in there because they were overcrowded. And so I was put in with a young woman. And so I was the youngest in the group and (laughs) I didn't know how to do much. But, you know, I lived with uh, like about 12 other ladies. Most people don't stay inside. We have half the house in the barrack at any given time. And then people would just leave to do other things, go to class or go hang out with their other friends. But people don't stay inside the the barrack until evening. So we have curfew at 10 o'clock or something like that. You have to be all in your barrack, you know, get ready for bed. Everyone kind of sleep on the floor. There's no bed. (laughs) Uh, We sleep on the ground and we have maybe some small pillows and and an issue blanket very simple life. Basically, I have nothing. It just eat, study, and the other people, they, they do whatever. I don't know what they do. They go hang out with their friends or go swimming or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's an island. So there's the beach right there. Oh, yeah. I was there for four months, Kuala Lumpur. Mm-hmm. That's the name of the camp that I ended up for four months after the island. They shipped me to this camp and I stayed there for four months to get ready, you know, injection and health check and all of the paperwork get done. I stayed there for four months before I got flown to the United States. Did you know that for always that you were bound for the United States or was it an open question for a while? I had no idea where I was going to end up initially. So letters travel very slowly during that time. So I wrote my parents a letter and they got it a month later. And mm. when they received my letter, letting them know that I had arrived to safety, they contacted the embassy or someone on the Vietnam side. And they were already planning to come to the United States with my dad being a war participant on the American and the South Vietnamese side. Paperwork and policies changed all the time. So my parents didn't know whether they actually would eventually come here. They are here now in the United States. But at the time when when I was leaving, they had the paperwork, but they wasn't not sure until they set their foot on the airplane, the whole program could be scrapped at any time. And then there's nothing, you know. So me going is like 
a secondary measure that we would be able to eventually, if they couldn't leave VA, the status of former Vietnamese army officer that my dad was, then I would somehow work and save enough money and sponsor them over. Okay, that's interesting. So that's that's why they sent you ahead of them. When they did come over, where did they end up? They came to Seattle because I was there already. And my my other relatives who they know uh, were already here. So when I came to the U.S., I had a second cousin who lived in Everett. He had contacted my mom and uh, told her that, yeah, we're here. We have you know, space and we could definitely sponsor Monique over from the refugee camp. And, you know, at the time, I think the UN, they try to reach out to first world country relatives like my cousin and see if I have a place and someone that is related to me to help me get adjusted. So somehow after eight months, <laughs> all the links got connected and my second cousin, he's actually my mom's cousin. They know each other from childhood, and I didn't know them. They had left Vietnam way before I know who they were. So I met them for the first time when I arrived to SeaTac Airport. Tell me about those early days when you arrived. Do you remember what your first impressions of the United States were? Yeah, uh, it's uh, it's I-5. <laughs> the the, <laughs> the highway. <laughs> driving on I-5. So, you know, I've never been on a highway like that before. I was very seasick. I was very weak at the time. So I was seasick initially on the boat. Then I got seasick on uh, the bus on the way to the refugee camp. And then I got seasick on the airplane, which is the most horrible time in my life. I always throw up uh, at the time. Whenever I'm on any kind of transportation, car, bus, uh, airplane, boat, anything that moves that it's not my feet, I throw up like, nobody's business and I was like is this gonna always happen thank god I think I must have gotten stronger and got used to transportation because I don't I don't throw up anymore but I was exhausted from throwing up on the airplane when I landed to SeaTac airport I did not have a jacket on it was December and it was in the middle of a snowing winter and so I saw snow in person for the first time. Wow. And it was freezing. <laughs> Everything was freezing. And I was in the car for the first time in my life. And my cousin who came and picked me up had to stop the car. I told him, I'm going to throw up five minutes, 10 minutes into the car ride. I said, you have to pull over. Otherwise, I might throw up inside your car. So he, he pulled over to the side of the road. I, I threw up on the side of I-5 on a bunch of snow. Oh, my God. That was my first experience. <laughs> well, now now that you've lived in Seattle for so long, you know how rare snow actually is. <laughs> so right, the fact that right. you came in during a snowstorm is kind of remarkable. Yeah. December 1989. It, there was snow. And then later on, it, it melted. And then there was a lot of rain. And I thought it was kind of romantic to watch the rain hitting the glass pane outside of my uh, window when I woke up from my exhaustive uh, uh, recoup, you know, from the airplane ride. But I looked outside the window, I'm like, I'm in America. Mm-hmm. It's so romantic. <laughs> <laughs> so romantic. Do you remember as a kid, had you uh, 
heard about America and had you thought about wanting to live here? Well, I, I never thought of that I was going to be here, but I did dream about Times Square one night when I was like 12 years old. I saw, I must have read and see things about America, Europe, all over the world, the pyramid, Egypt, and India, the Taj Mahal, and Times Square in, in New York. So one night I had a dream about being in America in the mid middle of the big city and all the billboard and flashing light and that corner that that triangle corner of Times Square where everyone is iconic I had a dream about that when I was like 10 or 12 years old and I'm like well that would be so cool to visit but I've never imagined that I was going to live here anytime in my life. How homesick were you once you were here well like once you're actually situated the intention is that you're going to live in the United States were you homesick? How did you feel about Vietnam at that point? Well, I didn't have any parents at the time, I, but I lived with my uncle and his wife and two children my age. And they have been here five years prior to me. But at the time, I didn't know. I was afraid to ask too many questions and feel like I would be intruding. So I didn't even know until much, much later that they only had gotten here before me a little bit. But, you know, they have time, the children, uh, the, the cousins who were my age had time to adapt. And so they were much cooler than me. They dressed much better. The English was much better. And I had to catch up. And, you know, I share a room with my cousin who's a year younger than me. And, you know, she didn't see me as a cool kid. <laughs> I was, I was the awkward nerdy and I wore these thick coke bottle glasses at the time it wasn't even like a thin cool sophisticated pair it was a like a refugee camp issued glasses I was at 5.25 diobes which is heavily nearsighted Mm. and uh, without my glasses I'm nearly blind so (laughs) I I had all of this uh, fun things going on for me like the teenage zit yeah got that check uh the thick coke bottle glasses check the greasy hair check I got them all (laughs) not the very cool kid in high school and of course my cool cousin who got here five years before me she was totally you know completely didn't want to be around me she well if she see me in school nope I don't know her (laughs) (laughs) so anyway so I had to kind of catch up. And yes, I was very homesick because, you know, new land, new people. And uh, I had to, you know, catch up in a very new environment. And sometimes, you know, you you feel at 17 years old, you feel alone. Nobody understands you. Nobody cares for you. You kind of, uh, you, you feel, feel self-pity. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I can understand that. I mean, and, and how much English would you say you knew at that time? I think my English was not that great. I mean, it was, uh, I, I couldn't understand most of what people were saying in class. At the time, it feels insurmountable how I was going to be speaking this language the way the natives could. And I'm like, well, you know, one, one foot in front of the other, I saw that some people had gone to college who spoke kind of limited English. So if they could, maybe I could too. I'll tell you a story. Uh, I, I was uh, in PE class and uh, they taught us how to play different games and basketball. And 
a lot of the instructions, the coach would use a lot of words that I don't understand. Just like a lot of uh, classes, I don't quite understand what they're saying, but I, I, I read a lot and try to collect as many words as possible into my vocabulary. But one time they were teaching us how to play basketball and after the instructions, which I'm sure most of my classmates already knew, but it was new to me. We were divided into two groups. You know, they always pick, uh, I was always picked last <laughs> because I barely know what to do. Yes. And, um, <laughs> you know, they were nice enough to pass the ball to me. And then I ran toward the basket and I throw the ball in and I threw the ball in, but they yelled at me and they were running after me as I was running toward the basket. And I was like, why are they screaming behind me? Why are they yelling? And I didn't know it at the time, but later on, I had a boyfriend that explained the game to me. And I, I realized maybe 10 years later that I was supposed to dribble. Oh, uh-huh. <laughs> supposed to dribble the ball. I mean, you just, just don't carry the ball and run straight to the basket. I mean, and if there's a more, a better example of a word that you just, why would you know the word dribble? Right? <laughs> when, you're, when you're learning a new language, dribble would be at the bottom of the list, I feel. Right. That was my life. I was like awkward, weird, not very cool. But, you know, like I said to some of my uh, now friends, I make friends with whoever who wants to make fr- to be my friends. Beggars cannot be choosers, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's lovely. I love how uh, you described the rain falling on your window and thinking that living in America was so romantic. Romantic is an interesting word to pick. Why do you think that that's what you thought? Well, anytime you feel peace and joy and a certain sense of melancholy of the things that you have read about and imagined, and now you get to experience it, there's a certain poetry in that. That's just how I feel. Mm -hmm. There's a certain romance about rain pitter-patter on the sidewalk when it hits the glass panel or the glass pane uh, on the side of the window, I never actually had a room of my own growing up. I sleep in a room with my, well, we don't have rooms. Uh, so we, we sleep in a, uh, like a family room that we put like two beds. I have four other siblings, so not everyone has a, their own bedroom. So we sleep in the common room. So I never had my own room, nor have I seen clean glass that you can see through and you can see these droplets of rain on the outside that drip down. So to me, uh, seeing this for the first time and you've read all these romance novels, the classics, for example, that describe this life. And now you're suddenly in the middle of it. That's the kind of romance that I experienced. I love that. That's such a wonderful description. Before we end, we have to talk about how matchmaking fits into all of this. Would you say that your cross-cultural background aids your abilities to make romantic matches between people? Um, I read a lot about all kinds of subjects. I, I, I mean, I, I easily outread most people that I come across. And the concept of romance, believe it or not, romance can be built, can be had with time when you love somebody. So if they are good people, you know, the other person is a good person and you believe that you can build a great life with them, you can. 
if they are really decent people and they care about you and you care about them, you can create romance in your life. Like I, I told you, you read about it, you wish for it, and now it's happening. You experience it and then you create romance, uh, opportunities to bring joy in the persons that you're with's life. So in my work, I don't just put people together. I coach and teach them how to create romance for themselves. So I, I have a totally different vision and point of view about marriage, couplehood, and romance that I would like to share with my clients because they have only been exposed to one kind of romance that Hollywood or, you know, storybooks tell them. But where I came from, my parents were very, uh, actually, they're very romantic. They too are very westernized. They read books in French and they write love letters to each other. I read some of them kind of sneak, I sneak, you know, they, they obviously they don't put it everywhere for me to see, but you know, <laughs> I came across them when I snoop around yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they, uh, they write very sweet and romantic letters to each other. But if you ask my mom, you know, and I did ask her, did you, I can tell you that when my parents got married, they probably have some feelings toward each other, but that that the love and commitment that they grown to have for each other, the affection, the bonding and the, and the depth that they have for each other, that had to be built over time. Because when they got to know each other, they were very young and they didn't have sex with each other before they were married. So that kind of bonding was absent, but still it happened after. And they are quite the bonded pair because they, my parents travel and do everything together. They, they're very respectful toward each other. And so that's kind of like my role model. You don't have to feel everything, but you have to find someone decent. And then both of you have to kind of commit yourself to building a life together. And then romance can come. So when you say it's different than the Hollywood version, it's not that the fireworks and explosions from first glance across a bar. Is that yeah, sort of, right? Yeah. I'm sure they like each other from first glance, but it was not fully developed mm-hmm. until much later. So what is uh, your job as a matchmaker, like advising people, but how do you also, I mean, I assume that there has to be some kind of spark, right? Oh yeah, they, they, there has to be some attraction, but I think in America and in recent history, romance is, is a modern ideology, mm-hmm. right? A mm-hmm. hundred years ago, people get married for economics reason. Maybe they like each other, maybe they're not wealthy, but they saw you know each other and they said, well, you know, you're the same age as me and uh, we'll get together and build life together. And that's what my parents had. And then they fall in love with each other after they made the commitment. Whereas now we have to have that all figured out and then we make the commitment. But the reality is there's no way to know somebody in full. I mean, my first husband, for example, he was married to a woman for 19 years. So when I talked to her, so I was the second wife. And I, you know, one day the first wife and I talked and I asked her, how can I deal with the situation, whatever was going on? And she said, well, I don't really know him. I'm like, what do you mean you don't know him? You, you were with him for 19 years and I just got married to him. Maybe we know each other last time. So could you tell me how I can handle this? And she said, well, he's a different person. And I tried to understand what that means. 
And all I can say is the person you think you know may not be the person that you end up in 10 or 20 years, unless you grow together, unless you intend to do things and grow together, the concept of will, free will or intention, I think is very important in relationship. You can form anything you want to. I I don't really believe in fate that much, a little bit, but not, I think that people can control their lives and drive their life in the direction that they want. If you just have the basics foundations, like good character, they care about you, you care about them, and they will go from there. I, th- I think some people say love is not enough. Well, maybe those people, their love is not enough. But to me, love is enough. And if you love somebody the way I love them, it is enough. So if you have a client who's looking for love, what do you do? How do you, how do you even put them in the path of finding someone that they might love? So my process, and I have a process, I get to know who they are, what their goals in life, who they want to be with, their vision of the future and where they've been. So I can see, okay, is there a connection between reality and fiction? <laughs> you know, um, where they right. want to be versus where they've been. Is there a path, right? And whether I can help them along that path. Like my clients, it's an older client who've been through life and they know what they want. And they're very fixed in their way. I don't coach them much. They kind of have things figured out for themselves. Whatever quirks and habits and idiosyncrasies that they had acquired over the years, is probably ingrained. It's going to be very hard for me to modify that. So I work with what I got on those clients. And I introduce them to people that fit exactly how they would want. But that also means it takes a while. It takes a a few try, a a while for me to find somebody for them. The younger folks are a little bit easier because there's some flex and give in their personality. They're still looking for who they are and forming a life with someone. When you're flexible, physically and mentally is very important. So one of the things I like to tell people is, the moment that you decide that you know everything, you don't need to learn anything and everybody around you got to change to accommodate you, that's when you cannot love because love requires you to adapt to somebody's ways and mold your life with his or hers. So if you are very rigid in your ways, there's a very high chance that you may not find love. That's why young kids teenagers and 20 something they're so adaptable they so they still open to learning they don't know anything so everything is they like a sponge they absorb whatever uh, skills that you give them and if you find somebody when you're young like that it's easier to mold your life with theirs and grow together now if you're two entities that's so different and rigid sure you can fit each other for a while but you can you truly ever become one after a certain age? That's going to be very hard. So going back to that big dramatic move you made, how would you say that your personality was affected by that move? That move was a, a, a turning point for me to become more adventurous, risk-taking. Maybe I've always 
been a little bit of a risk taker, but that kind of opened me up to a wide new world of risk-taking practices. I would have to say I got kind of lucky. My family is very conservative when it comes to risk-taking. And I'm also risk-averse myself. So when I, I took a chance and leave my, my family and came to America and be exposed to all these new experiences, I suffer greatly as you I shared with you, you know, not knowing the language and having to learn everything from scratch. It also toughened me up. It also taught me to be smart about making decisions. I have to venture out there, make lots of mistakes, but along the way, I make a lot of good decisions that help me where I am today. I feel like I've lived more than just a couple of lives. You know, maybe I've lived like three or four lives now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, maybe we'll have to have you on again to talk about some of the other lives <laughs> you've, <Yeah>. you've lived. <laughs> um, one last question. We talk about this on the show a lot when it comes to my co-host, Tiffany, who's left the United States and has lived in Italy now for almost 20 years. But we often talk to her about whether or not she'd ever move back to the States. And I think that that's an ongoing debate for her. Do you think that you would ever go back to Vietnam? No, probably not. I like it here. America, for all of its flaws and upheavals and discrimination, let me tell you, it is worse elsewhere. That's why I'm here. Mm. If there is a better place to live, I would be there. But no, there isn't a better place I mean, other countries I can visit, I can enjoy the differences in culture and cuisine, but this is home. There is no place like the United States of America. I have such a, an affinity to this country. I, I get teary eyes. When it comes to the United States, this is home. I, I feel very indebted to it. I'm indebted to it. Indebted how? It gave me so many opportunities that I would not otherwise have. I would never be able to be the person that I've become without being here. It is such a great land, you know. I hated it for a while when I was going through my divorce and having to deal with the, the legal system. I hated it. I wanted to get out of here. I did not want to live here because I feel like people don't value my perspective. They not only condemn it, some people in the court, the judicial system, they may have condemned or frowned upon or uh, judged my point of view negatively because I came from another country and have different point of view. And I hated it here. But, you know, I, I also have grown since then and realized that people will have prejudice everywhere you go. They will discriminate. People in Vietnam discriminate too. I just happen to be in the majority there, but the minorities there are also judged probably much harsher. So, you know, if you're a minority in any country, be a minority in this country. This is the best place to be a minority in because no matter how much I hate it here, it's still better than the rest of the choices. So I'm very thankful to be here. Well, Monique, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. We didn't even talk about your radio show, but if people want to listen to your radio show, how would they find you? They can go to afternoonswithmonique.us or they can go on Facebook and type in 
afternoons with Monique and they'll find me. Google also is another way. I'm actually all over the internet. (laughs) (laughs) If you just type in afternoons with Monique, uh, you'll find me. Yes. And what if uh, they live in Seattle and they need matchmaking help? They can just go to my website. There's a registration page and you type in some basic information about who you are and let me see if you fit the clientele that I service. And I typically service the more educated, thoughtful, family-oriented type. I am selective about the clients that I take on. I want to enjoy my life and share my perspective with like-minded people. So yeah, that's how you can put your information in. And I will call you and invite you in, get to know you. And off you go. I'll set you up on dates. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I'll put some links in the show notes as well. But thank you so much for taking the time. It's so fun to talk to you. Well, Katie, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for letting me share my story, all your lovely questions and curiosity about my very much, um, you know, not not all that uh, sensational life, but, you know, (laughs) it is my life. So I appreciate your time. A little bit sensational, I'd say. All right. Well, until next time, I am Katie Sewell, and this is The Bittersweet Life. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. If you love the show, take a moment to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We love to read while you listen, and your rating might help someone else discover the show. Take just a couple of minutes to let the world know what you think of this show. It means the world to us. Thanks. Thanks.